Well, this is probably uh, the most controversial subject uh, today. There's been all sorts of things going through history that have been controversial and uh, parenting and children and all those related issues. It's probably one of the most controversial subjects that we've got today. I'm afraid I've tried to fit so much into this talk, that's all I've got for an introduction uh, as we go through, other than to say that this is for all of us in church. This is not just for parents, this is for children, for parents, for couples, for singles, for grandparents. Uh, All of us need to be praying uh, into this area, and all of us have something to learn uh, about this area. So, with that in mind, first point, theology of children. What are children for? Well, if you're a fan of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of children is to glorify God. Because that, after all, that's the chief end of everything. But it's worth remembering that that is the case to start with. That is what the big picture is. Children exist for God's glory. And the relationship of parents and children exists for the glory of God. In fact, they really are based on that relationship between God, our Father, and us. And they're also part of God's original plan, pre-fall. So Genesis 1:28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Children were part of God's purposes for our world because the world was to be full of God's image bearers. That's why a man and a woman were needed, so they could have children that would fill the earth. But we also see back in Genesis that their roles are cursed after the fall. So Genesis 3, 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth your children. Not need to scare back you there. Um, but uh, children are still there, aren't they, after the fall? But bearing children, having children will be hard and painful. So it sounds pretty awful, that, doesn't it? But biblically, children are still a blessing from God. Psalm 127, 2-5 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So in the Bible, children are not seen as a burden or an interruption to our lifestyle options or parasites, as I've even heard them called by some parents. They are a blessing from God. And again and again, we see that in Scripture. Even when it's hard, even when conceiving and bearing children has been difficult, they're seen as a blessing. But we also learn from Scripture that children are sinners. I once spoke to some Mormons who told me that children were born sinless. I've met Christians who have thought similar since then. One told me she thought that children pick up sin at school. I asked the Mormon and that lady if they had any children. Unsurprisingly, both said no. Experience tells us that children are born with a desire to do wrong. You have to teach them to do right. The wrong seems to sort of come naturally, doesn't it? But children who aren't disciplined don't naturally end up behaving well. They end up behaving badly. That should give us the clue. We don't have to go from experience, though. The scriptures tell us that all have sinned. David in Psalm 51 even tells us that a conception sin was there in him. That's not to make any statement on what happens to babies who die in infancy or in the womb, but it does tell us that parenting will be hard. Because when we deal with children, we're not dealing with blank slates. We're not dealing with uh, children who uh, are sort of neutral, 
We're dealing with children who naturally want to choose the wrong rather than the right. There's a lot spoken about listening to our children. If you read a lot of the current literature, which Caroline and I have to had to read as we've gone through uh, our parenting experience, about listening to your children and allowing them to be themselves. And I sort of know what they're getting at, but themselves from birth are sinful or selfish. So if you don't believe me, come to Tots and Toys and watch what happens when one child is playing with a toy and then another child comes and wants to play with the same toy. They don't naturally make peace with each other and it's all fine. And what they need, therefore, if they're, if they're children who are sinners, what they need first and foremost is the gospel. Because the gospel, the good news, is for sinners. They need to be taught to repent and trust in Jesus, just like everybody else. But it also means, then, that parenting strategies, or the way we look after children, needs to take into account that they do sin, that they are sinners. Children will lie, cheat, deceive, manipulate, emotionally blackmail and so on, if they can't get their way. Even babies quickly learn to fake cry to get attention. Uh, I didn't learn that from a parenting manual, I learned that from linguistics. You can identify the the cry, I'm not going to tell you what that cry is or demonstrate, but that cry exists. And we need to be aware of that and not be naive, because forewarned is forearmed. But finally in this section, sort of thinking about the theology of children, we need to think about where children come from. Don't worry, I'm not going to do the birds and the bees. But uh, we really, in the Bible, the father is seen as the life giver to children. Uh, I'm thankful for this book, uh, Fatherhood by Tony Payne, uh, for pointing out this part. This is a spare copy, so if anyone wants one afterwards, just first person to ask me uh, can have it. But it's immensely helpful. I read it as a single guy about 15, 16 years ago. I wasn't even going out with anyone, but thought I really need to get my head around what this is all about. But helpfully it points out in there, and in the Bible, um, that the child is seen as being given life by the father. It's not always clear in any particular translation. Often you need to look in the footnotes for the literal meaning. The only exception I found this week when I looked into it was Wycliffe's translation, which is going back like hundreds and hundreds of years. Even the King James is not consistent with this. But here we go. Abraham is told that an heir, for example, will come from his own belly, is probably the best way to translate it. So this is Genesis 15, 4 from the footnote. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but what comes out of your own belly shall be your heir. It's the same word as is used of Rebekah in Genesis 25. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within your belly, same word, shall be divided. It's not translated that way because it makes it sound weird to say that a man has a womb. But it's that idea of sort of loins of of that area down there. But even the word womb is used for a man in Micah and in the Psalms. So Micah 6 verse 7, this is a literal translation. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my womb or belly, uh, for the sin of my soul? Psalm 132 verse 11, footnote. The Lord swore to David a sure oath. Um, which he will not turn back. One of the fruit of your womb, or belly, I will set on the throne. So the child there in the Bible is seen the product of, of the man's belly or loins. In Job it's put quite graphically. So Job 10 verse 10. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with flesh and skin and knit me together with bones and sinews. 
The child there is viewed as a curdled product of the man's milk. Even in the New Testament, this idea continues. Hebrews 7, verses 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Levi there is pictured in Abraham's loins. Abraham was seen as the ultimate giver of life, even though he was actually the grandfather. Why am I laboring this? Because it means that children are not just the realm of women. That's a common misunderstanding. They're also in the realm of men. In modern day parenting, men are often seen as a sort of junior partner, and even an optional partner in some cases. Whereas the Bible views the man as the senior partner in raising a child. That's why in Proverbs, it's the father giving instruction to his son. The mother is there, it's the mother instruction he's telling her to listen to as well, but it's the father speaking to his son, as we read before. That's why in the New Testament, the commands are given to fathers. Ephesians 6 verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3 21, fathers do not provoke your children, lest they become encouraged. Biblically, fathers are to take the lead in parenting. Again, that's why a qualification for elders and deacons is managing their children well and keeping them submissive. It's not their wives must manage their children well, it's that they must do that. It's ultimately their responsibility. They gave them life, therefore they are responsible for them. They have authority over them. Just as God gave us life as our father and has authority over us. That's not to say mothers are not involved. They're also spoken of as managing their household in the New Testament. They're commanded to love their children. In the Old Testament, we're told to obey our father and our mother. Raising a child is a team effort. Although, obviously, sometimes circumstances don't allow that. And that's acknowledged in Scripture. But really, the picture is of a team, a dad and a mum. And it's the dad who takes the lead. Mum might be the one that does a lot of the work, though not necessarily. But either way, the responsibility lies with the father. So, secondly, let's look at some practicalities with a bit of theology thrown in, because it's just everything trying to fit in. Firstly, it means that children's work in church is a blessing. Thinking about children as a blessing. Um, think, let's think about this as a church as a whole. We live in the New Testament. So it's not about filling the world uh, with, with children. It's about filling the world with disciples of Jesus, not filling a nation with as many children as possible. So don't worry, you're not disobeying the Bible's commands if you haven't had or don't have six or seven children. We're not commanded to outbreed the atheists, which I once heard a Christian say to me, there's their, their sort of plan. The gospel actually allows us to be mothers and fathers, even if we cannot or do not have children. Think of Paul, for example, prime example. He had no biological children, as far as we know. And yet he speaks of Timothy as his son. He speaks of being a father to the Thessalonians, even being a mother to the Thessalonians. There's a couple back in Tridlington who led me to Christ. They thought they couldn't have any children. But spiritually, I'm their son. The woman who mainly discipled me as a teenager has no children, but she was like a spiritual parent to me. I didn't have that from my own family, coming from a family that didn't believe the gospel. Those children don't even have to be young. In the gospel, you could end up with a child that's older than you. How crazy is that? Um, But it means that all of us are involved in that. 
Also within church, all of us can be involved in raising children, in our children's work, and also just getting to know the children in church, which Richard so happily listed off just before. And that's not just for women, that's for men too. I'm so glad that we have men involved with Tots and Toys, with mini heroes and heroes. I'm glad that it's not sort of seen as women's work, something that men don't get involved in. Now don't get me wrong, I'm so thankful for our women who do uh, so much of this important work, indeed the bulk of it in some cases. But it needn't necessarily be the case. All of us can be involved in that work. Children are a blessing and we should see it as a blessing. Second practicality, thinking about the theology from before, parenting is hard because of the fall. Children are a blessing, but we've also seen that that blessing is not always experienced as a blessing. From day one, it's painful. And scripture abounds with awful examples of parenting. It's hard to find a model of good parenting in the Old Testament as they deal with sin and the effects of the fall. Noah curses one of his children. Isaac plays favourites with his kids, as we saw this morning. So does his wife, Rebecca. Their son, Jacob, plays favourites with his kids. Eli won't discipline his sons when they act evilly. Samuel won't discipline his sons when they show themselves to be worthless. King David won't discipline his sons even after one of them rapes his half-sister. It's one of the few things that's pretty consistent across the Bible that everyone messes up at this. And it shows us that parenting is hard. And all of us mess up in some way at this. Because actually, if you think about it, the only person who's the ultimately good example of a father in the Bible is God himself. And none of us meet that standard. We should expect it to be hard. But thirdly, that sort of feeds into that, I wish I could spend more time on this, God has given us parenting teams uh, to look after children, and fathers take the lead in that. It can't always happen, but when uh, there's a married couple, it needs to be that the married couple work together. And that goes with grandparents as well, I should say. The most important relationship for a child is the one between their father and their mother. However old your child is, you need to work as a team. And the one who needs to take the lead in that is the husband, both practically and spiritually. So let me give you an example, devotional time, uh, Bible time, whatever you want to call it. It's up to the husband to make that happen. It's ultimately his responsibility. The husband pastors his wife and together you pastor your children. So if you think about it, I'm not the only pastor here. Actually, there are lots of pastors in this room, aren't there? As we support and help one another, as we raise others and build them up in the gospel. The elders and the leaders of the church are there to support that work to go on, if we need help in that. But it's ultimately the responsibility of the husband to make sure those things are happening, however old the husband is, however old the children are. And then lastly, really boxing through this evening, some tips. I hesitate at this point because I don't want to uh, make that I've got it out, uh, make out that I've got it all sorted. I'm also aware I've got my kids in front of me, so uh, if you <laughs> if you want to know whether I'm telling the truth, whether it works, you can speak to them afterwards. But this isn't so much scripture as what I've gleaned from others based on biblical principles. I hope it's helpful. Take what's useful, but it's it's a bit detached from uh, from what we've been looking at. The first one is be united as parents. Be united as parents. It's not coincidence that God made producing children a two-person job. Two people, yet one flesh. A team, and yet one at the same time. So that means, as part of that, you need to back one another up and come to common positions on things. Again, don't know how old your children are. 
The same is true for, for older children. Work as a united team to parent them. Decide on your position together. Don't let them play you off uh, one against the other. Don't let yourself be the fun and easygoing one and let the other one be the hard nut uh, that they have to crack. That's not how it works. Don't be good cop and bad cop. Or if you do, keep swapping who's which one. Don't do anything behind your partner's back. Don't tell mum or don't tell dad. Should never be heard on your lips unless it involves a good surprise or a present. Those are the two sort of exceptions in our household. If you really get stuck uh, with these sort of situations, um, I use a teaching technique that I learned called blocking. Again, it works on all ages, but please don't use it on me. Uh, say you've decided not to lend your, let's go the older child, say you've decided uh, not to lend your child money at the current time. You both agree, you've agreed it together, we won't lend you any money now. So when they ask, you can say, we will not lend you any money now. And when they ask you individually, which is the next step for them always, we will not lend you any money right now. When they keep asking you, you can say, we will not lend you any money right now. And eventually they will stop because they know they're not getting anywhere. Or thinking of younger children, when it's bedtime, I don't don't know if I want my boys to know this, but never mind. When it's bedtime and they keep getting out of bed, you need to go to sleep. But I've got my cuddly toy. Uh, You need to go to sleep. But my thumb hurts. You need to go to sleep. But I've forgotten to brush my teeth. You need to go to sleep. And in most cases, that will work. If they understand they're not going to get any engagement, that it's just the same thing over and over again, it will work if you both do it. Again, you both need to work together, because if one does different, they'll play you off against each other. That also works with group, children's groups leaders as well. So uh, if you want that for you know, leading miniature heroes or heroes. So be united. Secondly, be consistent. Kids thrive when they're given clear boundaries. This is what you can do, this is what you cannot do. If there's a reason why the rules change, that needs to be clear. It's different when you're on holiday. It's different when you're sick. But if you do that, expect the boundaries to be pushed again to find out where the boundaries are. When it's normal circumstances, boundaries and expectations need to be clear. And the punishment for breaking those boundaries or expectations needs to be clear. You'll probably know with us, we use counting to three. One gives you a warning, two gives you a second warning, and number three is where the consequences kick in. And we decided as a couple uh, that we would sometimes uh, use smacks. Not all couples decide that. Not hard ones, just a sharp tap. And never in anger. Never to publicly shame them either. We'd always take them off somewhere separate. Usually it'd be me as the dad who delivered them as I'm in charge of discipline. But my children both know, and I think you can ask them, that they know I took no pleasure in doing that. Other times it might not be uh, physical discipline, it might be missing things like iPad time or TV time. But if we threatened it, we went through with it. And if we weren't prepared to go through with something, we didn't threaten it. So we often hear parents threatening, oh, I'm not going to take you on holiday. Really? Are you really not going to do that? But we always communicated then what three would mean to our children. And Caroline and I talked at various parts, uh, points about changing three and what three meant. The wonderful thing is that we haven't got to three in years. Saying one is usually enough right now, occasionally two. I was, I was worried that my kids would hate me for it. That's honest, being honest, I thought, oh no, you know, they're not going to like it. 
that they both know that I don't want to punish them. But this is what we have to do. I was also worried that they'd be scared of numbers. Uh, <laughs> one! Uh, but that definitely hasn't happened. And do you know what? I think this is fair to say. My boys don't cower before me. That's not the relationship they, we have. They cuddle me. And I pray that I've struck the balance right in delivering discipline there. And so, I guess, thirdly and finally, don't be afraid to use your God-given authority. You are, as the parent, the authority. You have the responsibility to discipline, and your children owe you their respect. Again, that goes for if you're older as well, and in the right context, their obedience. They owe you that as their life, as you being their life giver. A lot of parents we speak to in the playground have already given up on this sort of thing. I can't make them do what I say. They don't listen to me. I've even known of parents asking teachers to tell their children to behave at home because they don't feel that they've got the authority to do it. But parents are responsible for their children. And responsibility in the Bible is accompanied with authority. That's why, for example, elders are responsible for congregations. We're told we'll give, give an account for how we've done it. But the Bible also gives elders authority over congregations. The two go hand in hand. Many times in the Bible, though, when it goes wrong, it's because parents are reluctant to use their God-given authority to discipline their children. We, all, we mentioned before, didn't we, Eli, Samuel, David. It's often like with those uh, people in the playground, they sort of throw their hands up and say, well, what can I do? They're just going to be themselves. Now, obviously with Eli and David and, and so on, their children have grown up. But clearly they haven't grown up being disciplined by their parents, especially by their fathers. And we all know horror stories, don't we, of, of men and women who take this too far. Physically abusing their children, emotionally abusing their children, withholding affection or approval, which can be abusive as well. But abuse of authority doesn't mean we give up on authority altogether. We want to be a million miles away from abuse of it, but at the same time we must exercise the authority that God has given us in the areas he's given it. It's hard, but we're to press on. So to finish, instead of singing, I've got a song for us to listen to together, um, which, it, yeah, it gets me tearful sometimes, but it's, it speaks so well of what we've been talking about. And uh, it's a Colin song, but I think you'll forgive me for Colin Buchanan. But we'll remain seated and afterwards I'll pray uh, and give thanks to the food. I'm going to hope that the technology works this time. Let's see how we go. Oh, you do, do it in Jesus' name. 